will not quit in the face of danger or pain or self-doubt. I will not justify the easier path before me. I decide that all my actions, not just some, matter. Every small task is a contribution toward a higher purpose. Every day is undertaken with a sense of duty to be better than I was yesterday, even in the smallest of ways. I seek out hardship. I do not run from pain, but embrace it because I derive my strength from my suffering. I confront the inevitable trials of life with a smile. I plan to keep my head to be still when chaos overwhelms me. I will tell the story of my failures and hardships as a victor, not a victim. I will be grateful. Millions who have gone before me have suffered too much, fought too hard, and been blessed with far too little for me to squander this life, so I won't. My purpose will be to uphold and protect the spirit of our great republic, knowing that the values we hold dear can be preserved only by a strong people. I will do my part. I will live with fortitude. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety, a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services. Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. This is uh, another very special edition of the podcast. I am, as usual, my name is Josh Lowry. Uh, I am usual, joined by David DeRode, co-host extraordinaire. David, good morning. Good morning. So, David, this is, uh, you and I are not the only people that matter on this podcast. This is, we have two special guests. We have some legitimate guests. We do. And uh, and also a legitimate host this morning, our good well, friend, uh, yeah. Laura Schilling. Good morning, gentlemen. So Laura Schilling is our VIP guest host this week. And I have to be honest, this is the first time we've ever had a guest on that I was more terrified of upsetting the guest host oh, no. than I was with the, the uh, guests. So That's we probably fair. Yes. That makes sense. Oh, my, my redheaded uh, <laughs> reputation precedes me, I guess. <laughs> no, just uh, excellence precedes you. Thank so we, you. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And that other voice you heard was our uh, actual guest this today, and it is Congressman Dan Crenshaw. Great to be with you. Thank you for, for joining us today. You are a busy man. Yeah, no, but happy to be here. It's yeah. some good people like this place. This is cool. And it's great to see Laura again. So uh, her husband and Chris and Laura have been, just been wonderful to us for forever. So no, great to see you guys. Well, I, we always start with, we, there's two questions we ask on the front end of the back end of every podcast that we do. And usually it's, have you ever been on a podcast before? I, you know, it's very easy to, number one, you host your own. Mm -hmm. And then two, 
you were just on Joe Rogan. So this is very similar to Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. I mean, same amount of viewership. Yeah, basically the same audience. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it's not quite the same. That would be, uh, I don't know if that would be good corporate um, practice to do the same things that Joe Rogan does on his podcast on this podcast. (laughs) No, uh, we're we're as buttoned up as you can be and being loose as you can be at the same time. So, and so let's, on that note, let's just jump into, we've got a lot of, uh, it was amazing how many questions we had from people that listened to us were emailing us or joining us on LinkedIn to ask us questions and, and what to ask you. So I'm going to I'm going to turn it over to David and then uh, you can start us off and, and go from there. Yeah, no. So, Dan, it's it's good to be with you and appreciate you taking the time out of here. We're very pleased with uh, your uh, choice to continue uh, providing great service to our country. So we greatly appreciate that. Thank you. But as you know, this is the Oilfield Field 360 podcast. We've had the benefit of listening to you speak in person and and seeing all the good things you're doing. Tell us a little bit about your connection to the oil field. I know you come from an oil field family. You mind giving us a little background there? Yeah, my uh, my dad was a petroleum engineer major at uh, Texas A and M. Uh, met my mom there, and uh, their first I think I don't know if it was the first job he took, but uh, yeah, probably it was pretty close. Uh, was in Aberdeen, Scotland. And uh, I think he was working for a company called Geo. doesn't exist anymore. And uh, I was born in Aberdeen. And uh, then we moved to Cairo after that. I'm not even sure who he was working for in Cairo, to be honest. <laughs> I was a toddler, so I wasn't paying attention to much of anything besides, uh, well, who knows? And uh, and then I, you know, I barely remember any of this, uh, of course, because uh, by the time I think I have any real living memories, I was uh, we were in Katy. And so uh, my dad worked for Halberton for a while. And uh, eventually we moved to Ecuador in, uh, I think I was in seventh grade and uh, moved back to Houston and then uh, spent the rest of my teenage years in uh, Bogota, Colombia. So uh, where he was with uh, Baker, Baker, Baker Oil Tools. So, uh, yeah, got a long, long history with it. I've, I've, I've got I got my, you know, a, a couple months of experience working, um, tearing apart uh, Packers in uh louisiana for a summer so i've I've done done a little bit of my (laughs) of of, of my own share of uh experience but uh, i always wanted to be in the military that was that was always my dream since i was like 12 years old and that's what i did yeah that's it was interesting to to read about that part of the book where you read the book or that your father gave you and you just from you zoned in on that yeah from the start right yeah that was just uh i don't know A, a lot of kids have a some kind of childhood dream um, I want to be a firefighter or an astronaut or whatever, a Navy SEAL or, or whatever it is. And then that dream sort of shifts over time into something maybe more realistic. And yeah, it just never did. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, um, you know, I just, I, I planned out my life accordingly and, uh, you know, understood the, the steps that I had to take to get to this place and yeah, just, and, and took them and that, and that's what happened. So, uh, I, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I didn't end up at a Texas school. But to be fair, some of these Texas schools rejected me, one of which I now represent, which is Rice. And so I, I like to bring that up every once in a while. Um, and uh, but uh, but always but as every good Texan does, made it back here. My uh, my I was born in Aberdeen, but my my dad's side of the family is six generations of Texans. So we've been been here a while. Well, I, I think one thing that comes through and you tell your story and you just said it now is how deliberate you are. You're a very thoughtful planner. And, uh, you know, your role in the Navy, um, you describe, uh, I think a lot of people are very familiar with that. Yeah. But when did you start thinking about serving your country through being in government? And hmm. when was that when was that moment that you thought about, hey, why don't I go be in Congress or run for political office? Uh, when did that start? Um, so I never wanted to leave the Navy. So I, I was in the Navy from 2006 to 2016. Late late 2016, I was medically retired, and and I and I fought that system for a while. So I was wounded in 2012, which is what led to my medical retirement. But it took four years, and uh, it's because I, we were trying to make it work, mm-hmm. and you just we just couldn't. In, in the end, um, there was, you know, there was no way to skirt the system anymore and get me deployed. There was just it, it was just became impossible. So if I would have remained in the Navy, I would have been on something called permanent limited duty, which means you can't do anything. <laughs> and so you can't jump, you can't dive, you can't deploy. So what's the point of being in the military? Um, now you are stationed in Coronado, California. So it's, it's not the worst, uh, not the worst of situations, but, um, but I am driven by purpose and meaning and, and I want to be fulfilled in whatever I'm doing. And so it, 
it was it was time to it was time to cut ties. And uh, I immediately did my master's degree at Harvard after that because which some would say is the Texas A&M of the East. And <laughs> wow, <laughs> we've got a couple of Aggies listening from the production room that yeah. love that. They're going to cheer for that one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's like similar colors, but uh, you know, at Harvard they're weird. They, they their their mascot is is a color, which is very awkward. Yeah. and and silly. Um, <laughs> but let's just be honest. But that aside, um, I I went to the Harvard Kennedy School because it's it's a government school and it's it's arguably the best government school mm-hmm. for domestic policy slash national security policy, which is what I was interested in. More domestic economic side has always interested me, and uh, foreign policy and national security has, has always interested me. But you know, and, and I figured I'd go into some government job after that. And, uh, you know, working on the policy side, not necessarily politics. And there's a difference. Policy mm-hmm. is well, it's what it sounds like. It's it's policy. And I encourage people who are thinking about going into government to identify the difference between the two. You know, if in, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a policy expertise in the oil and gas sector. And so you would you would look along a track along those lines mm-hmm. and you'd be an advisor in some way or you'd write you know, think tank papers or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, politics is very different. Politics is the art of implementing the policy. And to do that, you've, well, the benefits are you get to have an effect on a lot of different policies. It's more, it's, it's a bit more of a communications and leadership position. And, uh, but, but also it uh, tears apart your life in a lot, in a, in a much more extreme way. And so those are the downsides. And um, my wife and I thought about politics, so it's not like we didn't think about it. Okay. We, were, I was, we were thinking about politics, but we saw no path into politics probably throughout my year at Harvard, I would say, is when we first started thinking, you know, one day maybe we'll see where we'll see. I don't know where we would start, but maybe maybe one day mm-hmm. that that's something that we could look at. But that was about the extent of any any consideration um, because there aren't a lot of paths into politics. You, you have to. You know, you have to have a lot of money, know people with a lot of money or have an, ex- an, an exceptional window of opportunity. We'd been moving around constantly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, when, how was I going to get back home was was a question, mm-hmm. you know, just to and like, what am I going to do back home? Because I want a, a government job. There's not government jobs in Houston. So this was this was sort of how we were thinking about it post-military career. And um, I almost did take a job at Department of Defense doing counterweapons of mass destruction policy or more implementation working uh, with for a place called DITRA, which is the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. So I was like, okay, maybe this is an interesting sort of second career. And um, maybe I think the day that I was supposed to sign that that contract, I ran for Congress. <laughs> like, and so and, and, the, and so and that was that happened overnight. And the reason that happened is because my predecessor, Ted Poe, just announced retirement all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody loves Ted Poe. And uh, a lot of people listening probably know who he is. And um, he just announced retirement. And uh, I didn't even know about it because I, I don't follow politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and uh, somebody I happened to have a meeting on Capitol Hill who, with somebody who's now a good friend. And uh, he just pointed that out to me and said, well, I don't know why you're looking for policy jobs. You should just you could just run for office. And I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. Um, and he's like, well, what district are you from? And I and I told him the second district in, in Texas would be my home district. And because uh, that's where my family lives right now, it's where you know it's been home for a while. And he's like, "Oh, well, that's interesting because the congressman who represents that district just retired like yesterday." <laughs> it just it was so. And I would if I hadn't had that meet if that that meeting I believe was scheduled a few days earlier. If we if we'd had that meeting a few days earlier, mm-hmm. he would have looked it up and he would have noticed, "Oh, you're not going to beat Ted Poe." So okay, so well maybe we'll you know and yeah. the conversation would have moved on. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting in life what. What steps happen? What what serendipitous moments happen? And more importantly than that, what obstacles occur? Because I got denied White House fellowships. I got denied all sorts of things that if I had taken, I, I well, if I had been accepted, I would have taken and then been on a different path. Yeah. So I just I, I just think it's really interesting. So, so I got a I got a question before we get off of that. You know, being going into Harvard, I can understand how you get into Harvard. How they let a guy like Dave Patterson get into Harvard? I mean, oh, you know, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> He and I have a well, range it's a ve- together. It's a very good question. Yeah. Um, he's a yeah, he's a questionable fellow by, by all accounts. So the, the real question, you got into undergrad, which is yeah. way harder. Yeah, like, you know, it, it gets it's a, kind of being unserious. But on a serious note, 
It's ex- I don't. Nobody can get into Harvard. Yeah, as an undergrad, it's the, the acceptance rate's like less than five percent. Grad school a little easier. I'd say they just let let a bench about anybody into the Kennedy School, but I don't know. That's probably an exaggeration. <laughs> I'm but. just trying to figure out. You went, you went from wanting to be a career military guy. Is that am I reading that correct? Mm-hmm. And then you were discharged medically at yeah. 16. Yeah. And by 18, you had gone to Harvard and were a congressman. Yeah. So we're, we're, you mentioned that uh, was grad school in your plans. Um, yeah, yeah. Even I mean, before. Yeah, well, it, it's a natural transition. So the, the the grad school thing is is listen. You leave the military, you've got money to to pay for grad school because you got the GI Bill, or in my case, vocational rehabilitation funds. And so it's a great way to transition out of the military. A lot of military people do it. Um, uh, maybe they're doing their undergrad, or maybe they're doing a grad school. So it, it just we didn't know. Me and my wife we weren't we weren't sure what the next path was. What's a, what's a good way to right. to figure it out? Well, grad school. And um, as it turns out, you, there's, there's not a bunch of great jobs just waiting on a silver platter post-grad school. And, um, you know, a lot of military folks come into the oil and gas industry, and I think it's welcomed with open arms. And it's great, but it's hard transitioning from the military. So, you know, you've been in for 10, 15 years. You're not an executive, but you don't want to start at the bottom either. And it's tough for a lot of people coming out of the military. So it's, it's really great when companies uh, embrace veterans and like and, and realize the value in veterans. Like, yeah, you don't know anything about the industry, but they will learn mm-hmm. and they'll learn fast. And they have a they have leadership skills and social skills and teamwork skills that are, are very difficult to find in the in the rest of the world. Um, and so give them a chance. We've seen that transition really well. Some of your brothers at uh, Justin Bliffin and, and Kevin Pope at Brigade Energy Services. Yeah, and, Kevin Pope's and, a great uh, friend. You really do. Oh, you really we got do. my we whole network knocked yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. we, know, we know some folks in common, but to your point, though, that sense of uh, grit, tenacity, leadership, and that. And, and they're problem solvers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you it's know? huge. Especially in the SEAL teams, are really outside the box problem solving is deeply encouraged. Uh, none of us have ever read a field manual. And so and a lot of like Army, Marine Corps, they know their field manual. They know it like backwards mm-hmm. and forwards and they live by it. And, that, and that's kind of cool. I'm not, I'm not downgrading that. In yeah. any, it, there's there's some there's certainly value to that. SEALs don't even know where to find these field manuals. <laughs> like it's it's inter- it's a very, very different culture. But, but what's what's interesting about that culture, though, is and it's something I want to chat about real briefly is is this awareness of risk in risk management. I mean, you guys mm-hmm. take that very seriously. Because you obviously have yeah, to. It's a little bit of risk, but it's amazing how that transitions into life, and particularly in a business, oh, in a running business a business like this, for sure. Because I think so many businesses they don't they don't have a really good understanding of of their business and their risks, and they don't know how to necessarily uh, react when they've been punched in the face, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, that mindset, I've seen companies that have adopted that do significantly better than companies that that don't in terms of culture building and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's the key right there, right? Is the culture building. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about the Navy SEAL culture. Chris Bussell does the same thing. And it's the ethos that's connected there because it's, it's that commander's intent, right? right? When I'm in the middle of a storm <laughs> of whether it's a cyclical business or mm-hmm. something bad that's being fired at me, what is the next best thing to do? Yeah. No one's going to tell you what to do. You have to know what the commander's intent is and make a decision and hopefully yeah. a good one, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, commander's intent is, is a military term, of course, and it's it, it can be applied to missions it can be applied to projects and it's listen what's what's our end goal and so when things go wrong because they will uh yeah like like you said what's what actions do you take and what are you empowered to do in order to meet that end goal and um and and that and that that even varies quite a bit throughout the military uh in the seal teams we like to empower people quite a bit to make decisions at very low levels to meet commander's intent and um, it's, it's, it's better that they make a small mistake mm-hmm. than, than be frozen with, with inaction, just waiting for orders. And, um, it, you know, when I say we don't remember what, where, where the field manuals are, it's not because we're just, we live by chaos or anything, or not, it's not like we're a bunch of cowboys in the Wild West, or we've been described that way, but it, I don't think it's quite true. It just means that we're, we're first of all, we're more oral learners. Like we, we, we learn and by doing, and we learn and, in the classroom and then and then we go out and do it 
We don't like reading it. Um, well, and oil but, and gas is the same way, yeah, right? Yeah. You're out there doing it. You do it over and over. You practice your procedure. I think exactly. that's why a lot of the guys really enjoy it. And, and you practice contingencies and you mm -hmm. practice problem solving and you're encouraged to figure it out. And then and then and then self critique afterwards and training. And these are this is this is very deliberate process. But that autonomy, though, is allowed by competency. And that's something that mm -hmm. you guys, I think, really focus in on is, you know, constantly training and making sure you're competent. And I think there's so many life lessons out of that that apply to business. Um, so many businesses, they don't understand why they're not doing as well as they should. Mm -hmm. And I think you got to look at the culture and you got to look at the competency of the people and the communication. And there's there's breakdown in those areas and you connect all that stuff. It's amazing mm -hmm. what you can do. Yeah. And I know you talk a little bit about that in, in your new book, which we've all oh, yeah, read. Oh, yeah, it's ping the new book. Everybody should have read the new book by now, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's they're amazing. Hard, they're hard. You, can't, you can't buy them right now. I mean, yeah. the... Uh, you haven't been able to buy yeah. it for basically since it came out, yeah. which is very frustrating. Don't, don't get me started on the frustrations <laughs> with talking about running a business correctly. Uh, <laughs> you know... Um, well, congratulations, yeah. though, because I mean, <laughs> yeah. then you can you talk about culture and we're just a, it's a perfect segue because, David, you're talking about the what good culture can do for a company. What can good culture do for a country? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and <laughs> what I talk about in the book, and I, I think I briefly hit on this, is is what a lot of corporate ethos statements sound like or a corporate mission statement compared to what the SEAL mission statement is or the, ethos, the SEAL ethos. And the SEAL ethos is a really cool ethos. You can look it up. You can Google it. And um uh, and you'll find it, but it, it kind of just makes you want to run up a mountain. It's it's very it's a very well written ethos, and um, and it tells you who you should be. It tells you what you should aspire to as a seal, and that's quite different than than um, than if I were to go online and I were to look up a bunch of different companies' mission statement. They would be very, I don't know, uninspirational. Might be a good way, way to put it. They would they would sound something like, "Oh, we want to we want to you know be the number one producer here or whatever it is." You know, right. it's, it's very, it's not it's not telling you who you are, and and I think that's important for a company to adapt is an, is is understand what an ethos is. Ethos is it tells us who we are, and it, it's different for everybody, right? It does you can't just take the seal ethos and adapt it to any given company. But um, it's it's about it's about expressing virtues of the people who work there. Um, it's about you know expressing work ethics, and so it's an, it's it's more of an ethical, virtuous, almost moral um, statement about who you are. And I think that allows a culture to to develop within a company. And uh, some companies are very good at that, obviously, and some don't develop that. And therefore, there's no real unifying message. And it's hard to build commander's intent when there's no culture driving that. You know, right. so we, we've brought up the book, but let's let's uh, get it out there. It's Fortitude. The name of the book is Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. And, you know, my mom was an English teacher, so words matter to me. So I went and I looked up Fortitude in the dictionary. Mental and emotional strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger or temptation courageously. Mm -hmm. uh, the book is awesome. And I, I really I, and I'm not just saying that because you're four and a half, six, excuse me, six plus feet away from me. But uh, it is, it's a great book. And I mean, it talks about, there's a lot of stuff that we can touch on in any order that you'd like to go in. I, I love the outline from the, the book of where you start to build the case of what fortitude is. But I mean, just, and, and if you can, if you can summarize what fortitude means to you, yeah. I'd love to hear that. Well, the, de the definition is perfect. It's not, sometimes you want to expand on a, on a, on a Webster's definition of yeah. a word, but, but that was the reason the, the title was chosen. And uh, it was the last thing of the book that got done. Honestly, the book was pretty much finished and I didn't have a title yet. I was I really struggled to find the title. And I, I kind of knew and it wasn't I wasn't stressed out about it. I knew that one day it would just hit me. Now, that day was getting really near because there's a <laughs> deadline. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I, you know, if I write another book, I don't want to do it on deadlines because uh, I just want to relax and write the thing. But eventually came uh, the subtitle. I think we always had it was I always wanted it to be i wanted to tell people what the theme was and its resilience in the era of outrage i mean that's fundamentally what it's about but we couldn't get the title but it was perfect right and uh yeah it means it means it, fortitude it, it means resilience to adversity it means overcoming adversity it's 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 the it's the antithesis of fragility which is what i worry the most about about uh, modern culture driving into not just in america but eh, western civilization and um 
we've got to stop it. So this is this is fundamentally a culture book. It's not, you know, people probably thought I was writing a seal autobiography. Well, that, that wasn't the case. It's not a political book either. There's, you know, and there's a little bit of both things in there, but it's primarily a culture book and very light on the politics. And even when I do mention politics, I, I try to be fairly even handed with my criticisms of, of both sides. Obviously, I'm, I'm deeply biased. I'm, you know, a very conservative Republican. So it, it is you're, you're going to see that. But I'm not I, I think if you're a liberal person, you can easily read the book and not and not be annoyed by my Republican proclivities. I, I mean, honestly, uh, look, I, I love the way you're laying it out there. But really, the audience that we have is it's business oriented um, and it's where we send we tend to peak highest on the entrepreneur uh, category. Mm -hmm. And if you're an entrepreneur business person, this book is it really lends itself to the struggles that you're going to go through with starting a business, you know, making money or not making money, deciding how you're going to keep pushing on when yeah. something like a coronavirus hits you and you, you have no revenue for two to three right. months. I mean, there's a lot that the audience is really going to attach themselves to from a business standpoint. So yeah. you could almost even say it's somewhat of a business book. Yeah. Maybe but, I could do another version, um, you know, fortitude for business. Cause I, cause I don't, I don't have any experience in business. Well, so I don't bring it up it in, is, in the book, but, I, but you could easily apply it. It's absolutely applicable. And, yeah. you know, I am a small business owner and I'm telling you, there is, there's so many parts in that book that I just, when you're reading it, and I was telling the guys when we were getting lined up here, I said, I gotta be careful. First of all, I'm on three double espresso, so I'm excited already, but then, <laughs> You know, so the, is that six shots? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, my math right there. Enough, enough to enough to That's light solid. this whole thing yeah. on fire. I'm ready to talk. Yeah. But <laughs> but, the, but you know, as I read it, I'm looking at this going, this is exactly what it's like when you get punched in the face yeah. and you have to keep going on a business standpoint. So I just I'm really kind of saying that uh, to incite some conversation on your side. But really, I want the audience to know that this is not um, you know, I didn't get the feeling that you're writing this book to go the, the ulterior motive for the book to me is very clean. It's like, look, you've got to take responsibility for yeah. yourself. And, you know, and I've got some questions I want to ask you on that. But the overall theme of the book, if other than fortitude, mm -hmm. is there, you know, because I looked yeah. at the chapters. Yeah. Is there is there a theme that yeah. you really there's, felt there's, was there's the underlying? A, there's a few that are intertwined in it. And um, so the, the the premise is there's a problem with outrage culture. And, uh, you know, that's in the title. And that that originated from my Saturday Night Live experience because so that that was sort of the, where the idea for the book came from like because that was my big experience with outrage culture, and uh, we 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 sort of and I and I added this coffee actually the same guy who convinced me to run for office also convinced me to write the book he, he's made me do a lot of work yes. in my life <laughs> yeah. uh, and so well we appreciate him yeah. <laughs> that's right and so he's like hey take a meeting with this guy he's an agent and you guys discuss over coffee like what 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 if you were to write a book what it would be about and um, kind of came up with this plan and uh, I was like yeah I can definitely I can make this happen and I added an outline of the chapters because I knew the themes that I wanted to write about I, I could I could make that happen pretty quickly and I and I wanted it to be basically a self-help book I, it's you know it's kind of a cheap term but it's sort of what this book is with with a with a sort of a culture warrior theme throughout it and so a big theme that runs through it is victimhood culture and I think that's a that's a it's an element of outrage culture. So outrage culture to me is like the petty cancel culture, screaming on Twitter at each other kind of outrage that we see all the time, um, mostly in national conversations, a little bit less so, I think, on the ground level in normal American life. And I'll, of course, I think that depends on where you live. I think you see it a lot less if you live in a place like Houston. I think you see a lot more of it in other cities. Okay, that's just generally my my take on that. But you see a ton of it in the national conversation. And the thing about social media is it can elevate everything to a national conversation quickly. And it's it's become problematic. And I think it's making people upset more than they need to be. It's making politics more difficult than it needs to be. It's making our our culture is becoming divided in ways that we've never previously seen. You know, wasn't. Media has always been divided. Politics has always been divided. You can say it's more divisive now than before. Maybe, maybe not. But the culture is clearly divided here. And that's manifesting into a much more of a victimhood culture where, where people are, are, are elevating victims instead, instead of heroes. And so I have a little chapter about what it means to be a hero and well, the heroic attributes that you should aspire to, hero archetypes. So it's a, it's a deeper psychological discussion. Of, of, of how human beings view archetypes and what we should be looking up to and aspiring to versus what we shouldn't be. And we've, we've sort of turned the hero archetype on its head. 
And the victimhood culture, so when I, when I wrap the book up talking about the story of America, and this is, this is maybe the most political it might get, but it's still mostly a cultural conversation about how America itself is in a foundational way and a symbolic way is being torn down in our politics these days. And I think that comes from victimhood culture, where you always want to blame somebody else for your problems. And then you elevate that blame to not just somebody else, but like a group of people. And this was where you get identity politics from. And then you elevate that to institutions. And so you're blaming institutions. And I don't just mean your physical institutions. Well, an oil and gas industry would be an institution. It gets blamed for a lot of things, if you mm -hmm. haven't noticed. But, but so would like a, a meritocracy is an institution that's getting destroyed and blamed for things. And if you're on the radical progressive left, like you'll blame the family structure. So that's an institution. You'll blame marriage. You, you'll, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's the word institution means a lot of different things, but it's all being kind of torn down. And so that gets labeled as the next oppressor on the hierarchy. And then but, but what's the final oppressor? Because what's the What's the base for all of these things, these groups, these identities, these institutions? Well, it's it's the America, it's America itself. It's the American flag. It's our founding, and that gets labeled as the ultimate oppressor, and that and that it gets used to justify the sort of revolution that these radicals want to want to impose on the country, and um, and I think it's deeply problematic uh, because uh, for for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But a quick word from our sponsors, and then we're right back to the show. Prang and Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust a leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? You have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash 0360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, I think that I might suggest that the book also laying out a system of thinking. Mm -hmm. And you talk about all of the noise that comes with social media and i love that you have a chapter in your book literally titled be still yeah yeah <laughs> be because truly I, I think everyone whether we feel it uh in our work life or what we see happening in the national conversation um there's an impetus and a, a lot of support for immediate reaction mm -hmm. right and uh, I think the book is phenomenal in laying out the case for being still and i love you know doing the hard stuff and I think the truth is when you're in those two modes, right, yeah. you don't really have a lot of time to react because you're thinking about right. what the next best things are to do and to decide. And it's in all these lessons, they they come from they're not original to me. Mm -hmm. OK, so, you know, when, when, when you teach your son to just count to 10 before you freak out on your parents, yeah. like that's, he's still he, mastering that. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> right. We all are. But, <laughs> But the point is, is you're teaching them that, yes. and that, and that, and and where'd you get it from? You know, there's 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 deep cultural traditions in Western civilization that go back to that that I think we should appreciate a little bit more. And this is this is my problem with the sort of revolutionary radical left is they always want to turn everything on its head, and in doing so, they they throw out traditions and and, and you know cultural norms that have been true for a very long time. And they believe that they're the first ones to realize that they're not true. And it's like, no, they're true. They're true. They, they've created, and, and it's hard to pinpoint how they've created what we have today, but they have. And there's fundamentally good virtues that you that you can't really argue with. Okay. And so I'm just trying to, I'm trying to bring those back in, in the book and being still or counting to 10 before you become emotional is, is, is simply one of those. And I, I call it be still because 
well, there's, there's, you'll just have to read the book. There's, there's a kind of a, a quirky way that I come up with the word still, and it, and um, it's, yep. it comes from a military term, and you'll just have to read it. I'm not going to give it all away. Yeah. And um, and and then the other thing of, of do something. The other chapter you mentioned, which is called just do something hard. So the, you know, these I'm not. I'm using very simple language here. <laughs> Do hard stuff and it will make you better. Okay. <laughs> Be still when faced with some kind of problem or, um, um, you know, or emotional moments and you'll be better. And the do something hard is, is, again, it's quite literal. There's there's a lot of value derived from challenging yourself on a daily basis. Or and it doesn't have to be daily, but I mean, yeah. yeah, pushing yourself past limits you thought you had every once in a while is such enormous benefits to it. And uh, and we go really deep into the benefits in the book. It, it's not, you know, it's there's psychology behind it. There's philosophy behind it. There's 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 a lot of science behind it. It's it's a so you, I want you to learn something when you read a book too. I don't I don't like self help books that are just like, hey, just do this. I want you to I want you to learn where the stuff came from. It's it's those are all good points. It's a it's a shame that our our scheduling didn't work out. We're glad you're here, but uh, our previous guest Aaron Marquez, who's CEO of Wildcat Oil Tools, who Love to have you out at uh, Midland sometime. He's a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. But, you know, he's the epitome of the American dream. And to all the uh, attributes you were talking about, you know, pulling himself out of ESL class because he was born in Mexico and said, I'm going to run to the bullets and learn how to speak English. I don't want this ESL stuff because I'm never going to get ahead. And always trying to challenge himself and push himself, but also this culture of, bringing everybody along with him and helping out and giving back. It's just, it was so impressive. And it was, you know, we, we had originally scheduled both of you guys. It had been great, you know, because it would have, because so much of what you're saying speaks to his story, which is not unique. A lot of people share that, but it, I think it does speak to what makes this country so great. If you can quit thinking about all the troubles, because everybody's yeah. got all sorts of issues right. and, and has been through their, you're you're lucky you didn't come the day he was supposed to come because he also owns a tequila company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it it could have you know made a very very long Friday afternoon for no, you. I don't feel lucky. <laughs> so that would have been cool. The uh, <laughs> yeah, and I think what it, and I don't, I've never I haven't met him yet. We haven't had that conversation, but it sounds like what what he's saying would really um, would really relate with uh, chapter nine, which is the stories we tell ourselves, and. Because fundamentally, the book is about outrage culture, which, which sort of means you're you're getting outraged about things you shouldn't even be getting outraged about. OK, right. so there's a lot of petty issues out there that, that people are, you know, they've, they've lost perspective because life is so great now and they don't even they, their ancestors would be just taken aback by, by what you are by what you are being coming emotional about these days. So that's one element of it. But that but doesn't change the fact that some people have true injustice levied against them sure. and that there's truly bad things that happen mm -hmm. to people. And so now what do you do? Right. Because, OK, you could argue that your outrage and your anger is totally justified and maybe it is. But it doesn't mean that it works for you. And, that, and that's and that's my point in that in that chapter. You know, it's it's you have to tell your you still you still benefit from telling yourself a story of victor over victimhood. Because you, you you might you might be a true victim by the definition of it. OK, that's still that's still something that happened to you. But what's going to happen to you and how are you going to tell that story moving forward? And are you going to overcome it or are you going to stay in self-pity? So this is it's a bit of a tough love conversation, but you have to have it if you want to be successful. Do you think that's a result of I have a belief about the education system, which I think is a, is a mess, which creates a lot of these issues, but. Do you think it's a, a function of perspective? I was told by mm -hmm. somebody the other day that I'm not going to repeat the percentage, but it seemed like a a very large percentage of people in Congress today don't have passports. And they've not been outside of the country. They don't have perspective mm. of being we've all of us in this room have been around the world several times. We've seen the rest of the world. We have some perspective. We have yeah. a, a deep sense to integrity and country and, and how special we are to live in the United States and be afforded the freedoms that, that we, we've been afforded by our forefathers and people like yourself who, who, uh, who served our country. Do you, do you think that's a, that's a, that's an issue? Yeah. I, I think to that point of victimhood, I mean, like you always hear, you can choose to be a victim or you can do something. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit, 
I, I, well, one of my chapters is called Perspectives from Darkness, and I talk about that. So it's an element of it. I think in the political side, though, it's not so much that members of Congress haven't, you know, done something in the military enough or or, or seen hard things. It's that it, it's about opportunism for them mm -hmm. because victimhood's a great way to manip manipulate people. And, it, you know, and I'm, I'm, now, now I'm just speaking because I, I really don't. Well, you could argue that some Republicans do this to an extent, but it but it primarily happens on the left. Right. There's a lot of benefit and they see the benefit derived from telling people that they're oppressed, that they're victims and that only they can save them. Only government and only if you elect me will I get you the things that you need and I will make you happy. I will end your suffering. And the last chapter in the book, again, it's kind of the place where, you know, because I, 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 I really pick apart the philosophical differences between progressivism and conservatism. And this is ultimately why I believe that moving forward to get out of this mess, this cultural victimhood mess that we're in, progressivism is completely the wrong way to do it because what does progressivism promise? A utopia, an end to your suffering. And for me to tell you that I need to end your suffering, I basically have to tell you you're a victim and you need to believe that. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. This is a problem in, in, what our, in how our politics is interacting with this, what I think has been a long time human need to feel self-pity and it feels good. It's like a warm blanket. Like it's a warm blanket emotion. Like somebody did something to me. It's their fault. And I'm waiting for somebody to save me. Who's going to save me? Well, that politician said they would. This is, and, and this is, it's a vicious cycle and it keeps you in that mental state. And it's not sustainable ultimately for, for, for a culture. It's not even sustainable in your own family. And you wouldn't treat your kids that way. You know, I always, I always say liberal or conservative, you, you teach your kids certain lessons about accountability and about, about what they are able to overcome on their own. You give them kind of rules to live by, but then why would you leave that setting and go and, and go treat the American people totally differently? Mm -hmm. Don't you love the American people? Cause you love your kids. That's why you teach them those lessons. And that's, I think, unfortunately, I think that's why victimhood comes in because it's more opportunism than it is. These people just don't know. Yeah. You are describing big ideas. And your book is very, one of the things I like about you, and especially in the book too, is you try to break each one down to its own moment to see how can we solve this, let's, let's debate, let's get good ideas, and then come up. So as you're describing these things, especially the victimhood culture, which I, you know, I agree is out there, um, but where do, where's the first start, step for people? I mean, what can we do? I mean, not just, because yeah. uh, I, I, again, we agree with these, but okay, Yeah. now I, what can we do? I, I think the... The, the the order of the chapters in the book was basically designed, I think, to to build upon one another. So perspective is the first thing. And, uh, you know, I talk about my perspective going through, uh, you know, near death experiences, going blind and all that. Uh, I'm not saying go blind. That's not what I'm saying to gain your perspective. <laughs> That's, don't don't injure yourself mm -hmm. to gain perspective. But just recognize this is a conscious recognition and you just have to do it. Like it's really as simple as just doing it. A conscious recognition that no matter how hard you have it, somebody has it harder and did better and overcame it better than you did. So that should kind of make you feel bad, right? That should make you feel like, you know what? Maybe I should, maybe I should cowboy up a little bit. And uh, that I, that, 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 which kind of relates to a chap, a later chapter on shame. Feel bad for things that you do wrong. And you know, you know, when you cut that corner, you know, when you didn't really do the project to the best of your abilities, you know it, you know, when you weren't on time and nobody noticed, but you got away with it, you know it. And I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. Like I do this. I don't like, oh, listen, I, I am guilty of all of these things, but at least I feel a little bad about it. And that's all I'm asking. <laughs> so because once you feel a little bit of shame, it leads to a more sense of duty to actually do the right thing. I've asked you a question, but I, I already know the answer to what I asked you. And it's, it's what can we do? And I, one of my questions that I wrote down in my pre-show notes is which chapter was your favorite? Do you have a favorite mm -hmm. chapter? Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's like choosing between my dogs. Like, <laughs> one of which is what, sleeping. Yeah, there. we brought this yeah. Yeah. Uh, dog friendly uh, podcast. Yeah. So uh, he's very bored by the conversation. <laughs> um, I, I think the most important one is who is your hero? Uh, I liked I liked writing that one. It was it was very unique. It's um, it's a I like psychology a lot. And so I it's a it's it's a psychological discussion on 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 hierarchies and and heroic attributes and how you should choose those things. But maybe the last chapter is probably because that really wraps it up. And that's that's where I, I delve into progressivism versus conservatism. And so, God, I don't know. One of those, maybe. Well, I have a favorite chapter and I'm sure you were going to ask me, Josh, what was your favorite chapter? <laughs> <laughs> but I but I do. And I actually I think the way it's chapter eight about doing something hard. Mm -hmm. I love that chapter. That to me is, you know, when you talk about 
what can you do? If, if, if as much as you'd like to expand on it, I just thought that was that was it. When, yeah. I, when I read that chapter, I'm like, all right, this is what you do. And I don't know yeah. how you, I, like I said, that's my favorite well, chapter. Because then that lesson stems from, it's very obvious to SEALs how how BUDS shaped them and Hell Week. And there's, there's a fundamental purpose behind Hell Week. And it's part of its screening, but part of it is, is confidence building. Um, and you, you need to know that you've pushed way, you've pushed like quite literally hundreds of miles beyond your limits. And that's what Hell Week provides you. And uh, that's really important in combat because there's, there's almost no situation in, in, in future training or, or combat where you're like, yeah, this is the hardest thing. Well, I mean, you definitely, I did find harder things than Hell Week eventually. But, uh, but the point is, is, is you've got the confidence to deal with it because you've already pushed way beyond limits you thought you had. And I'm not saying everybody's going to go through Hell Week, but you got to find your version of it. Right. And in uh, your version of Hell Week, as long as you're pushing past your own limits, and I, I bring up some very just simple examples. I don't know. Take a cold shower, like a freezing cold shower. It really sucks, and you never do it. But maybe if you did, you could be like, oh, "That's what I did today." You know, I sat in there for five whole minutes. I don't know. It's yeah. hard. It's not. It's not pleasant. It's not your comfort zone. Yeah, and it's just it's just removing yourself from comfort zone. For me, that kind of stuff is usually physical in nature. You know, it's, it's gym time, and uh, but you know, and if there's if there's some kind of outdoor activity, that's you know, I'll go do that. Um, it doesn't have to be though, and it, it can be it can be new skills or projects or or reading a book yeah but you said you you promised yourself you would read maybe it's my book <laughs> it um, definitely needs to be your book so this i mentioned the uh, uh rogan podcast sadly this is not the rogan podcast we don't have three hours with you today so <laughs> we are an oil and gas related podcast yeah. um if our our friends that have texted us and emailed us if we don't ask some of these questions i think they're going to be yeah. upset with us so on that note lord you want to kind of lead us into the the energy side of the yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad we're talking about doing things that are hard because the reality is there's huge job loss in yeah. the sector, right? We've gone from 800 rigs and 800,000 jobs, especially on the oil field services side. Now the rig count is below, what, 400 at this point. And I stopped looking. Yeah. Got <laughs> super depressing. I mean, and it's the velocity of the change has been one of the most dramatic and I know we talk about our business being cyclical, but right now there's a lot of guys at home who were at work, you know, a few weeks ago and man, they're in the middle of doing something hard. And I think they'd love to know, there's a lot of questions about the role now that U.S. production and, and yeah. U.S. should play. Um, we were starting to be that swing producer, right, in OPEC because of the large production coming out of the U.S. out of shale. Um, but, you know, going forward, your thoughts on, is it important for us to be energy independent still? Or what, yeah. what role does the U.S. play going forward on the on the energy side? And I know from policy perspective. Yeah, uh, it, it's extremely important for us. And president knows that. Republicans tend to know that. And um, Democrats completely believe the opposite. And so this is this is a real problem. Um, this is why it's difficult to do some of the common sense policies that we need to do. I mean, we need just simple things. You know, let's let's buy low and sell high into the SPRO, for instance. That's we can't get Democrats on board with this. Mm -hmm. And even if we do, they'll they'll ask for for some very extreme things in response, like tax credits for solar and wind for another 10 years. And I'm like, that's not a that's not a fair trade, you know, because you're, you're trading one bad policy. And that is a bad policy. You know, I understand why they wanted to do it for a while, but that, that that's, you know, those tax credits are expiring for a reason. That's trading a bad policy for, for a, what is a good policy. And there's no reason to think it's not a good policy. You know, hey, if it goes into the, I, mean, I don't know, you could argue it all sorts of ways. It's not getting burned if it's in the SPRO. So let's, I mean, let's just, let's just do some common sense things that keep our industry alive. The other thing I tell the environmentalists is, Okay, you have to do away with this crazy false notion that that you're just going to keep it in the ground worldwide. That's not how life works. Uh, energy needs will go up by 20, 25 percent over the next 20 years. Obviously, we're in a lull of energy needs right now, but that, that's not going to last. And uh, world population will be what it will be in 20 years. And those will go up. So who do you want providing energy? Well, it's not going to be the solar and wind. So just it's not that's not scientific. That's not no engineering to back that notion up. Just stop it, Green New Dealers. It's not possible. So who's going to produce it? Well, it's Saudi and Russia. And if you're an environmentalist, who would you rather produces it? It needs to be the United States. We do it cleaner. 
Um, our production is cleaner, and there's interesting EPA studies that for on lifetime cycle for natural gas, Russian natural gas is 42% dirtier, 42% more carbon emissions than US natural gas. And so why do my liberal friends in the Northeast want to import Russian natural gas and not use Texas natural gas? Because they, they refuse to build, you know, you guys know this, obviously, you can't get your pipelines built to get it over there. And so this is a, this is a, we haven't done a good job of helping you either, by the way. I mean, the no, industry no. itself needs to step up and yeah, become a better. Yeah, figure mouthpiece. out the messaging and, and all that, and you know, we're we're figuring that out. We were we were really hitting this new energy frontier. This is kind of my my I, my environmental plan to counter the left, and a new energy frontier means an all of the above strategy, and it means pointing out these obvious truths, like I'm pointing out now that American energy is cleaner. It just is, and you can't get away from it. So let's use it, and um, and let's and let's. And let's talk about the aspects of it that are that are cleaner, and you know, let's let, let's provide the facts and the engineering behind it. And um, doesn't mean I'm against building a solar and wind farm, but it's just not. I think we need to be realistic about what's what what those can do, and what place those have, and, and what yeah. will work and what won't work. And so, and, and if we, and here's the other thing we have to remind people of: if we lose the American energy industry, now your oil prices are 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 much more dependent on shocks from around the world. You could go, you could you could imagine a scenario back in the seventies, uh, where you got long gas lines and, and and sky high prices, and you know, and it's, right now it's the opposite problem. That don't think for a second that can't change, and you don't. It, from a national security perspective, you 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 cannot be reliant completely on foreign oil, and um, we're we're in severe ideological disputes with the left on this. Yeah, that, that's the main problem. We're not having rational discussions. Well, I think it ties back into what we were talking about just a second ago, which is perspective. You know, we, we took a lot of the political premium out of the oil price with the shale revolution. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, both of we've, we've all seen the, some of the events that had we not had the shale revolution going on, we would see higher, you know, energy costs. The other interesting thing is and dirtier energy costs. Again, you got to bring the environmental side into it yeah. because that's it's the only thing that convinces independents and and people to agree with you. And you got to keep keep telling them the reason the U.S. has dropped its carbon emissions at like fifteen percent over the last couple of decades is almost entirely because of the shale revolution. Yeah, drive to be economically efficient, which in turn gives you you know improved environmental performance. You look at what you know, say five drilling rigs used to do now. One drilling rig is doing what five used to do, and in yeah. some of the technologies there. The interesting observation uh, I have with with kind of this COVID OPEC plus mess has been the challenges that the renewable power sources have had with the you know disruption in demand for power in the and how that's impacted there because it's it's really good as a supplemental power mm-hmm. source, but. Really, it really right. challenged with intermittent. And, and that's a basic engineering argument that we, we need to be getting out more. Yeah. And I do. Um, the other the other, you know, it's not just it's not just buying into the SPRO, by the way. There's there's other things we're working on. You know, we want to give the industry uh, loan relief, maybe look at forbearance options. We need to the Treasury and Fed are still looking at a kind of a specific lending program for the industry and uh, still being worked out. We're, we're pushing for things like the, the reserve based lending to, mm-hmm. to change so that, mm-hmm. you know, you're not you're not trying to get your loan terms on, you know, March gas prices, but maybe January or, or whatever we come up with. But there's 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 other options that are being talked about. Um, but I, but the unfortunate reality is Congress isn't going to do it. If Congress was friendly to an American workers, uh, <laughs> which you would think they yeah. would be. But they're not. And again, I told you this, the, the ideological disputes, and it's hard for people in the industry to, re- to understand this because you guys think in very rational terms. And it, the, the unfortunate reality is that there's a large segment of society that does not believe in rationality on this at all. It's very ideological. It's very dogmatic. They hate, they hate you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's weird. It's strange. It doesn't make sense. They don't know where things come from. They don't know that they're using all your products all the time. Yeah. And they don't. They honestly don't believe they are. It's a very. Mm-hmm. It's it, this influences policy to a massive extent. It's very problematic. And like, we just we need people to speak up. It's kind of sad because I think we see the train that's coming, and that is you know the destruction that's been created to the 
U.S. energy industry as a result of this and and policy not being made. I mean, I, I'm in the risk business. I was on seven bankruptcy calls last week, I've seen thousands of people laid, laid off. A lot of these folks we know, good friends. And some of those companies obviously were challenged um, prior to uh, prior to all this stuff happen. It's only yeah. been, but it's a shame those companies that were well-managed companies by by most accounts, not just looking at financial results, how you just couldn't survive this yeah. kind of double whammy. And, and uh, I think we're going to see higher than normal energy cost in the in the future as a result of us having yeah. to, to Right. It. And that's what you got to remind everybody of, you know, it might be low right now, but it's going to be higher later. And it, in the end, you know, I'm, we, we talked about a couple options to, to help the industry. In the end, the only thing that's going to help is is increased demand and increased prices. And uh, which is which is reopening the economy. Now, Texas gets that. And uh, look, oh, my God, the world's not ending around us. Can you imagine that? Despite the media constantly trying to remind America cases are rising in Texas and it's like a thousand. I'm like, yeah. So let's say we're at about it. We're, we're, we have kind of evened out at about a thousand new cases a day. First of all, most of these people not hospitalized. Second of all, how many people are in Texas? Like, I mean, out of how many? Like, guys, the, we need to be rational on this. And so Texas is doing the right thing. A lot of states are following suit. That's a that's a whole new interesting um, dynamic is, is is how that conversation it's, is falling falling along partisan lines. Oh, it lines. just feels very political. Yeah. Well, so you were in D.C. last week. Mm -hmm. um, any any interesting insights coming out of that? I think to oh, David's yeah. point, our industry is thinking, is there, you know, away policies that can protect us, whether it's tariffs or a new role in trade. And mm -hmm. we're hoping that you guys are having that sort of discussion yeah. on the Hill. But uh, can you tell us a little bit well, about no, your week that, last we were, week? We were bumped from last week because yeah. we had to go meet with President Trump. Right. So again, very standard in how we operate. Most of our guests get bumped for meetings with President Trump. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> very standard operating procedure there. Um, the, the, again, the, I, I just think it should be really honest with you. The unfortunate reality is, is that smart discussions in the House of Representatives are not happening at all. But we, we voted on a three trillion dollar bill last Friday. None of us had even seen. They, they, they. The Democrats revealed that <laughs> Tuesday and said we're voting on it Friday. It's a three trillion. It's the largest bill in history. You know, like it's. It's this is it's a joke, and that was my floor speech. So I'm like, is this a joke? Do you guys think this is a joke? You, you can't. This is this isn't even. It's not even good policy, let alone you know. I can, I can usually get over the the fact that something is just revealed all of a sudden. We have to vote on it because yeah. we do have lots of staff that goes through it. We kind of can figure out what's in it rather quickly. That's usually not my argument, but this one was ridiculous. This one, it's you know, it's it's almost a trillion dollars of bailouts for for states that didn't manage their finances well, which means. And, and again, I don't understand how a Texas congressman, because we have lots of Democrat Texas Congress people here, not here, do you know what I mean? Yeah. In Texas. And you're voting to send federal tax dollars that your constituents pay to basically to other states that don't manage their finances well. Texas government is is pretty good, as, as we all know. And uh, that's why a lot of people are tired of moving here. Well, just wait till they don't have the oil and gas revenue in the budgets anymore. Right. right. It's I mean, going to have a significant a impact in yep. states like in the Northeast and in New, New Mexico. Mexico. New Mexico's getting hit really hard. And anyway, so no, it was not a good bill. And then they also voted to do proxy voting and remote voting, which is cowardice, you know, and I, 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 I can't I'm, I, I can't figure it out about yeah. why this, you know, that's that's the big discussion. You're too scared to go to work. That's that's Congress for you right now. They're too scared to go to work, and um, it's 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 sad and and cowardly, unfortunately. Well, so. we are not going to end on that. <laughs> there's not. there's been too much. There's too many great things to talk about. So we tip. I told you there was two questions that we ask every one of our guests. The front end is, have you ever been on a podcast? And the second one typically is, uh, what piece of advice would you pass on to your younger self? We're not going to ask you that question. <laughs> one of the things we'd like to do uh, on this, if you don't mind, is we have your American ethos. Sure. Um, and if you would like to read that, we would love to read. That. And if you don't, we'll just edit this part out. But if you read it, <laughs> I'll read it. All right. What's yeah, a win we, for yeah. us? Like so this is this is the last um, this is the last paragraph in my book, and um, I thought we needed an uh, an American ethos. The way I talked about the seal ethos, and um, I wanted to distill that into something that that everybody could could basically adopt. And again, this is the the book is a bit of a cultural roadmap, and so maybe this sums it up. 
I will not quit in the face of danger or pain or self-doubt. I will not justify the easier path before me. I decide that all my actions, not just some, matter. Every small task is a contribution toward a higher purpose. Every day is undertaken with a sense of duty to be better than I was yesterday, even in the smallest of ways. I seek out hardship. I do not run from pain, but embrace it because I derive my strength from my suffering. I confront the inevitable trials of life with a smile. I plan to keep my head to be still when chaos overwhelms me. I will tell the story of my failures and hardships as a victor, not a victim. I will be grateful. Millions who have gone before me have suffered too much, fought too hard, and been blessed with far too little for me to squander this life. So I won't. My purpose will be to uphold and protect the spirit of our great republic, knowing that the values we hold dear can be preserved only by a strong people. I will do my part. I will live with fortitude. So we're going to save that, and we'll replay that in uh, January, either four to eight years from now, and uh, when we're celebrating maybe something bigger. But uh, that was completely better than I expected. I wish we had more time because this could just go on and on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the new Pledge of Allegiance in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, like, there's a lot to wow, it. Thank and, you. And really, it's, uh, you know, you're going to have everybody on our side rooting for you, if nothing more than just rooting for educated dialogue, quite honestly, yeah. calm, rational thinking that we can help move this country forward. So, uh, Congressman Crenshaw. So real quick, what do you think, where can people get a hold of you and look for more information? Oh, everywhere. Crenshaw.house.gov. Um, you know, search for my podcast and, uh, you just search. For What's me. your podcast name? Uh, hold these truths. Hold but these truths. Search, search for Dan Crenshaw. It's an easier okay. way. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, I'm everywhere. You know, if, if you're on any platform, you can find me. And so we, I try to, that's, that's a, big part of communication. You got to find people where they're at. And so that's why we do a podcast. That's why we're on all social media. I would go on TV to do everything. Okay. Ms. Schilling, thank you for being our VIP guest host this week. No, thank you. Thank you, Dan, for coming and sharing more about the book. It's outstanding and a fantastic conversation. If uh, if if you are not inspired to call your congressman right now <laughs> in whatever district you are. Call him. Please call them because, uh, as Dan said, I think there's some important things we need to pay attention to uh, if we're going to drive some influence and represent uh, not only our industry, but uh, the logical thinking that we all um, need. Need. (laughs) Yeah. David? Thank you for being here. It's a real pleasure and an honor. And uh, keep up the good work. Thank Absolutely. You. And we'll, uh, we're going to have links to a couple places to reach you also to, uh, by the way, you can't get this book on Amazon. So we maybe need to figure out another way for people to get a hold of it. That, congratulations yeah. on that. It's Thank been you. quite the best. You can, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I'm usually posting in my story, a link to, to buy it. You know, it's not going to come fast like most books would on Amazon, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's a way, there's some ways to get it. Well, we'll help you. We'll be one of those ways to help get the word out. So uh, just awesome day. Thank you very much, Jonathan, as usual. Thank you for your professionalism back there. Uh, that's going to conclude this edition of Oilfield 360. Um, if you have any questions, uh, you can look us up uh, at oilfield360.com. All complaints send to David at davidoilfield360.com. Anything great, send to josh at oilfield360.com. As uh, that's our usual, uh, how to get a hold of us. Mr. Crenshaw, thank you very much. Good luck to you. Appreciate it, guys. Yes, sir. Good to be with you. Yep. This episode of the Oilfield 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies EIV Capital, a growth equity focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVCapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil, for more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, 
TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcher Azul Tequila, FletcherAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at Oilfield360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and & Company, and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.